Tonight's reading will come from John 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come up from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them in the towel which with, he was, which, with which he girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What am I doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this? Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I, do not wash, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed his feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent to be greater than he is who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do, if you do them. I do not speak concerning of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. nice to hear the Word of God uh, read before us. And whatever I have to say over the next 20, if you're optimistic, 30, if you're realistic, minutes, will not compare to the amount of questions that you could ask yourself and you could ask the Lord from a particular text of the Bible like that right there. When you were listening to Josh read... Um, if you're reading intently and, and, and hearing it, did questions come into your mind about that event, about that situation? I can't tell you enough, uh, encourage you enough to spend time in the Word of God, even just in a section like that of 20 verses, and let God's Word provoke questions in you. Like, what does it mean that the devil was put, put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus, I wonder, did he wash Judas' feet that night, the betrayer? What scripture was Jesus quoting when he says, the one to whom I give this and he eats on my food, he's going to betray me? What scripture is that from? Where is that in the Bible? And when it was originally written, Psalm 41, if you want to go find it, what did that person mean? Do you see the number of questions you can ask about the Word of God that will just let you meditate on God for hours upon hours, as long as your time will allow you. I really want to encourage you to spend time in the Word of God and ask questions 
There was a question that was once asked to Jesus, and it was really straightforward and it was really simple. Um, I think the people that asked the question were probably expecting a more complicated or nuanced answer than Jesus gave, but the question was just simply, hey Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? Um, What's the greatest expectation that you have, that God would have, of mankind? And this was a particularly normal exercise for most of the people that were involved in dicing up and and analyzing the law of God and figuring it out. And Jesus just simply replied that the greatest thing that a human life could ever do is that he or she would love God above all else. That you just love God. What's the greatest thing that you could ever think of, Jesus? That you would return the love of God that He's shown you. That you would love Him. Now, in my life, I've loved a lot of things. Uh, I have memories of loving, at least feeling the sensation of what I believe to be love, from probably my earliest memories, whether it was very simple things like um, a Little League game or Christmas morning, to more complex things later in my life, like being married. And I've even enjoyed that transitioning from, you know, preoccupation and obsession to, okay, we're going to do this thing for the rest of our lives together. Let's figure out how this works. And then children have come into our lives. And that feeling when your breath is taken away, when your little five-year-old is walking into kindergarten, you cannot believe that that little thing right there owns you. You know what I mean? I've experienced love. But what's been gnawing at me for some time that I want to share with you, as we sort of begin our uh, winter series on the evenings for the next three months, what's been gnawing at me personally is the inconsistency by which I experience God that way. Jesus said the greatest thing that I could do is to return love to God, to love Him. And then I in my mind think, well, there are things that I love and there are actually people that I love. There are people that I relate to right now that I have a dear, deep, abiding love with. And then there are moments that I consider my relationship with God and it is incredibly inconsistent on that front of loving Him. I can be very theoretical about God. I oftentimes increase my knowledge about God without ever really increasing my knowledge about God, if you know what I mean. I'm very fluent sometimes in his marching orders. I can list off doctrines from A to Z. I can tell you about church governance and things like relationship doctrines. I can tell you about sacrament doctrines. I can tell you about the way of salvation. I can speak of the marching orders of God so frequently. But oftentimes I find myself substituting, relating to the God who has loved me with love for just a stance on some doctrines or some beliefs about religion. And I think we were made for more than just that. I think we were made to love, enjoy, and be loved by God. Okay. What really stirs me about that is that the Bible doesn't describe the way that we relate to God in just theoretical terms. In fact, if you go to the Scripture and see, most often the Bible speaks to us of relating to God in two very distinct ways, primarily. The first one is in the parent-child relationship. God is most frequently called our Father. We His children. 
So there's a parent-child relationship that God speaks of how he relates to us. It's a metaphor of how God relates to us. The second one is, the second most frequent one we see God relating to us is in the form of lover or spouse. Okay, so those relationships are unique. They are separated in Scripture. Parent-child, spouse relationships are sanctified. They're holy in Scripture. They're different than any other relationship. They're spoken of, specifically, excuse me, even in the Ten Commandments in a very holy and distinct way. And they are separated because of their permanence. Because of the contract or covenant by which you enter into these relationships. What I'll call tonight is the word attachment. We're attached to mother, father. And we are to be attached, bonded together with spouse. So with all this coming together, this led me down the long road of understanding the idea of attachment. I think attachment is sort of a shorthand word of understanding what love really is. And so, and as I discovered different things, and I'm not going to share tonight, but I can tell you that the formal attachment theories of psychology began to develop about 60 or 70 years ago. A man by the name of John Bowlby um, really began to do a lot of work in what attachment theory is, what, how attachments are formed, how people come together and they become attached to each other. And then people like Mary Ainsworth, if you want to do more research, came along and did a lot of refinement to that. But there are a couple things that are noteworthy about attachment that I want to share with you, and then we're going to dig into the text. The first one is definition of what it means to be attached. Um, sometimes the word attachment can have a negative connotation, and so I want to avoid that tonight and see if we can get into attachment a little bit more healthy. But attachment is this. It is a deep and enduring bond that connects one person to another across time and space. So attachment is not dependent upon proximity, so to speak. Like, like I'm in the same room as you, therefore we're connected. That's not what attachment really is. You and I share space right now. We might even share the same church home. But if for us to have an attachment, that means that there is a bond that is deep and enduring that exists beyond time and space. In fact, I would suggest it even goes beyond the realm of living in this life. Some of you still probably have experienced and feel attachment to those that are not currently living in this world right now. Attachment. So the second thing I ask then is this, and what shows up in this research is, how is attachment formed? Have you ever wondered that? How is healthy attachment in relationships formed? And what they really boiled it down to was this, that there are two major factors that are involved in two people being attached to each other, healthy. The first one is your view of yourself. How you view yourself. And the basic way that you can see this is one of two options. One, do you believe that you're a person that is worthy to receive love from somebody? Do you have a positive view with regards to your lovability? Meaning, like, am I someone who can allow myself to be loved? The other end of that spectrum is that I don't believe that I deserve to be loved. That's a negative form of that, okay? Does that make sense? So that's the view of yourself. The second, for, the second factor is this. What is your view of the one to whom you're trying to be attached? And the, the spectrums go like this. One end of the spectrum is that I view this person as a positive, trustworthy person. 
that I can receive their love and I can give them my love. I can trust them. The negative side is they're not trustworthy. So you can put together a little pundit square. Do you see that? You know what pundit square is? Two on the top, two on the side, and it crosses over. If you have a positive understanding of who you are, that yes, even though you're flawed, you are at least as a human being worthy to be loved. If that is positive in you, and then you have a positive view of the one you're being attached to, that I can, I can trust this person. When those two things come together, what you have is a secure attachment. And you know where all this was discovered in psychology? In the parent-child relationship. Longitudinal studies over the time in which a baby was born until it was about three years old. They watched, and the baby would learn, am I worthy to be loved? Can I be loved? And when a baby learned that, yes, I can be loved, and then it looked to the parent and said, I can trust you that you are going to be there for me. When I cry, a bottle comes. When I'm dirty, the diaper gets changed. When I'm tired, I get held. Does that make sense? And so when that positive view of parent is formed and the positive view of self is formed, attachment happens. I think there is great application with how we experience God. Are we attached to Him? The vast amount of people that I see, that, including my own experience, when we stand in front of God and we think, I'm not really worthy to be loved by Him, affects our attachment. And then there's a whole other group of people that when they look at God, they're not sure that they can really trust Him to be led by Him. They're not sure that they can trust Him. And so when that's negative, attachment is also broken as well. The ultimate goal of our series uh, throughout this fall is going to be this, that you and I would develop a healthy attachment to Christ. And then out of this relational attachment to Him, we would grow intellectually about Him. We would grow in grace. We would grow to love Him more. We would grow to receive His love more. But it all starts with this basic attachment. So if this is our goal, why in the world would we come to John chapter 13, right? Why the upper room? We're going to read John 13 through 16, uh, January, February, and March together. We're going to work our way through this. Why come to this? And I would say this, that ultimately, there are thousands of things that you can do with the upper room. There's thousands of things that you can learn. You can learn about the character and nature of Jesus. You can learn about the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of things you can learn from the upper room. But here's what I think, as I read over and over and over over the last six months of this text, These 11 men in that room became bonded to Jesus. They didn't have it all figured out. In fact, they were scared to death. But after this time they spent with Jesus in the upper room, based upon what they saw from Him and what they learned about Him and what they learned about themselves, they became forever attached to Him, bonded. And I long for that for myself and I long for that for you, that you be attached to to Jesus. So I propose we walk through this event together. John 13 is, fit, is a fitting scene. It opens up with action. Jesus doing something. Um, he, it doesn't take long for him to get active. You notice there's not a long discourse, but Jesus gets busy. And this is really how you find out about somebody, by what they do, how they act, how they behave. People say a lot of things. We speak a lot of things. But at the end of the day, our behavior really shows if we're trustworthy people or not, if we're somebody you can count on. And so what Jesus does in the very beginning here is He gives us a living, breathing parable to His life and His ministry. 
our message is going to center tonight around verse 8. If you read verse 8 with me again, Jesus says this to Peter upon Peter's confusion about what Jesus is doing. He says, if I do not wash you, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share, no part with me. And oh, I wish I could just give you all the full details of what that word share with me means. It really just comes from the idea, you know, when the 12 tribes came into the promised land and each tribe, except for the Levites, got their portion. That's where that word comes from. And Jesus being the spiritual, the new Israel, forming the Israel, what he's saying is, if I don't wash you, we're not going to be attached together. You see, that's the crux of what we got to get to tonight. Let's start with Jesus, what he knew. John gives us a preamble, so to speak, a preparation of this text. He says that Jesus knew his hour had come. That's um, John speak, Johenian language, so to speak, for the time of his departure, his death was here, and he knew it. Jesus also, John also says that Jesus knew all things were into his hands, all authority. He knew that it was his now. He was the Lord. He knew his identity. John says he knew he came from God, and he knew that he was returning to God. And it's that core identity, knowing where he came from and knowing where he is going, that frees Jesus to serve and to be completely independent of the system of this world that sucks us in and holds us captive. Knowing where you're from and where you're going defines an independent identity that allows you to be attached to God. Jesus has that. And so, let's look at what he did. No one had got up. The preparations for Passover meal were made, and there was no one there to wash the feet. They had most certainly had taken a bath before they had come to this place, but when they entered in, no one had been busy because there were no servants there washing the feet after walking on the dirty road into this place. And so they have all joined the table. And Luke, in his account, gives us a little bit of detail here, says that at the table, when they were communing together and having this Passover meal, that the disciples together, the apostles, started to argue about who's the greatest. So around the table, this happens a few times in the life of Jesus, they begin to bicker. Like, hey, listen, man, when this kingdom thing happens, dibs on the left hand, you know, they just call it. You see what's on their mind. They're thinking about, I'm going to be in power. I'm going to be in control. And there's Jesus quietly observing, most likely, this dialogue of authority happening. And over to the side, there's the towel of the servant, the basin and the water, and not a person gets up. And so Jesus quietly gets up, and here's where the parable begins. And I could preach this parable to you, but I'm not going to because of the intent. So I'm going to give you the parable and let you think about it. So if you're taking notes, get ready, write quickly, follow with me. Watch Jesus' life parable. This is a parable without words, okay? Jesus' actions is a parable. First of all, He rose from His place. He left the place He was sitting. Do you see the parable? He left the throne of glory from heaven. Jesus laid aside His outer garment. You see, Jesus set aside His glory in heaven. Jesus took a towel. He went and grabbed a towel and girded His waist. Jesus took the form of a bondservant. He's left His place in heaven. He's set aside His glory, setting off His outer garments. And He's taken the towel of being a servant. He pours the water into the basin as Jesus will shortly do pour out the agent of washing His blood. 
he begins to wash, applying the cleansing power of the agent that there he's using, which he will certainly use as his blood. And after he's done, Jesus puts back on his garment, taking off the towel, returning to his glory, and then it says that he resumed his place. Jesus, most certainly after his death, burial, resurrection, had his glory returned as he prayed for in John 17 and then ascended back to the Father. Do you see the parable? The life parable? That's what Jesus did. And no wonder Jesus said to Peter when he came to him and he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing right now, you don't get it. You don't understand. Like all the parables of Jesus, they had seeds of truth in them that we see, but we have to really think about and contemplate for moments and times and dwell on. This is a life parable that Jesus is doing for them. And it brings us to Peter. What's so interesting about Peter is that he has extreme reaction. He starts, first of all, by saying, you're not going to wash my feet, and ends up saying, give me a bath, right? Sponge me down. Let's wash head to toe. Such extreme reaction. And Peter really is a great example of how that we, we oftentimes react to the cleansing power of Jesus. First of all, he refuses to be washed. You see when Jesus comes to him, look down in verse... Um, Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter, in typical fashion, is bold with Jesus. He's, he's oftentimes rebuked Jesus. I brought him aside like a child and said, You will not die, as though he were older and a parent and, and rebuking Jesus. Here he speaks again in a very command tone to Jesus, saying, You will not wash my feet. And what I found to be interesting about this is I spent time just reading that text over and over. I could sense what Peter was sensing there. And, and here's where I just get really convicted in the moment because I jumped into Peter's shoes. Like, I get it. Jesus shows up at my feet and they're dirty and he's the Lord and I get who he is. I'm not letting him wash my feet either. There's no way I'm letting you do this, Jesus. How, how can I let the Son of God, I've confessed, I know who you are, how can I let him wash my feet? There's no way. And on the surface, it appear, appears to be so humble, doesn't it? How could we ever let Jesus wash our feet? But boy, as I dwelled on that and I dwelled on my own heart, and most likely the heart of most of us, the display of Peter was really just an example of human pride. That's all it was. There's no way I could let you wash my feet. What Peter was saying was that if I were the Lord, I wouldn't wash feet. And it offends me that a Lord would wash feet. Do you see that? What's in Peter's mind, what he's thinking about is, hey, what were they just arguing about before Jesus got the towel? Who's going to be in authority? You think Peter was arguing? I'm sure he was. Hey, I'm one of the three. I'm on the inner circle. And in Peter's mind, in his economy, if I'm the Lord... There's no way that I'm washing feet. And so if Jesus approaches me ready to wash my feet, he's offended at this. No, Jesus, I can't let you wash my feet. But here is the crux. And at this point, the history lesson turns into eternal truth for us. Because the ego and the pride of Peter's is the very same that you and I own. How could we ever let somebody wash our feet? And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, 
you can't have a part with me. You won't share with me. And so washing is central. Washing, our washing is the central idea to you and I being connected to Jesus. You see, there's something about us. There's something within us. The problem is not with Jesus in being attached to him. That's not the problem. There's something within us. That's why Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can't be connected to me. There's something in us that has to be washed so that connection can be happening with Jesus. Jesus knows that our washing is our greatest need. And I think if we're honest, we know it. I think we feel it. I think it's the engine inside each and every one of us that we long to solve this washing to fix that. It's the engine that drives each and every one of us. And I've wondered, what is that? What is the washing? How could I describe in a generic sense for all of us, what is the washing that we need? And we might say, well, yes, it's sin, and, and I agree that it's sin. But if you really get into the sin and what needs to be washed, I would encourage you to look in Romans chapter 3, really as, as Paul unveils and unpacks what sin is there in verses 9 through about verse 18, when he describes the human condition that there is none righteous, no, not one. Our mouths and our, are like open graves or open tombs. He says within us there's just evil. But it comes down to the end, and here's what he says about the condition of being sinful. Are you ready? He says, for sinners, the way of peace is not in them. I think maybe another way to say this is restlessness defines them. A constant churning that things are not okay. A constant churning that I'm not okay. It's this restlessness that is the motor that drives the system of the world that is under the bondage of sin, the system that I'm not okay and things are not okay, and so I've got to continue to drive to try to wash myself, to fix myself, to cleanse myself, to make myself presentable. You see this restlessness within us. 